for the reading of God's word as we get into our teaching for this morning. Our teaching text is out of Acts chapter 2 verses 37 through 47 this morning. And it says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may be seated. All right. So, today is Father's Day. We've mentioned this already. <laughs> you already have too much information. Uh, and uh, if you're a dad in the room, I, I always have this impulse on Father's Day that making a big deal about Father's Day is the opposite of what a good dad does, <laughs> right? We don't make it, all, to make a day all about ourselves is probably not what we should do. So I always kind of downplay it a little bit. But today is a special day uh, for me because... Uh, oh, you need to have, okay. I stole it. There it is. Hey, hey, take, take all the notes you want. It's very important. This is what happens when you steal people's bulletins before you get up. All right. Uh, today is a special day for me, though, because I have my father. My father's here, Brad, and many of you met him. He comes fairly regularly. But we also have my, uh, my grandfather, Alex, is here. Uh, the Neppers are showing up real strong today. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a strong contingency of Neppers. Sorry, Nate. Uh, Nate. Nate's my cousin, but he's a Davis. Uh, there, uh, there is nothing like, uh, and this is what kind of cracked me up when I was thinking about today. There's nothing a father wants more than to have to sit quietly for 35 minutes while his know-it-all son tells him... <laughs> lectures him. So happy Father's Day to you guys. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm thankful to God for these men. Uh, I'm thankful that they've given me both a, pra a rich practical and spiritual inheritance, uh, and I just want to honor both of you today. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, but even as I reflect on uh, the blessing of having uh, wonderful fathers in my life, I'm also acutely aware that that is not everybody's experience. Right? And as a father myself, I'm also very conscious of all of the ways I, as a father, have fallen short, right? All of the ways that I am a broken person and I mess up. I lose the path from time to time. Uh, I have a son who's about a month old, and I think I was batting 100 for about 48 hours with him. And then we quickly, we lost it. 
But it's at those moments when I'm very aware of when I'm very aware of the ways in which I am an imperfect father that I'm reminded that the scriptures teach us that we have access to a good and loving father, one who is not flawed and broken like I am, one who loves us with a kind of fierce and perfect love. And if you are in this place today and you did not have a good paternal example in your home and you feel that kind of lack like I feel in your own self as a father this morning, we have a father who wants us to know that he loves us, that he loves us, and that he wants his love to be this kind of healing balm for us that moves from our heart, from our heart out into the outside of our being to everyone we know. You know, in the New Testament, uh, in the book of James, the author of the book of James uh, describes God as the father of lights, the father of lights. And he says that all good things come down to us from him. Everything good that we have comes down to us from him. And then he says this really interesting thing. He says that at at the very core of God's being is a kind of consistency. And James puts it this way. He says, in him there is no shadow of turning. There's this complete consistency at the heart of God the Father. And that is just so beautiful to me. me, isn't it? That at the heart, at God's heart is this beautiful, consistent, and ever-present love for us. And when we as fathers don't feel like we measure up, when we don't feel like we carry that heart into our daily lives, when we don't see that kind of love and consistency manifest through us to our children, we have only to look to a God whose love for us is perfect and consistent. To, to look to a God that loves and accepts us just as we are. And who's quiet sometimes, but also kind of fiery love for us can transform us. And I think as a father, one of my primary responsibilities for my children is just to stay connected to the reality of the father's love for me so that my kids in some way can, be, can see that same reality. Because if I stay connected to the reality of a, of a father's love that is perfect, hopefully, not all the time, my love for my children will be more consistent, more loving. And I think one of the primary responsibilities of any father is simply to love them as, as imperfectly as we love them into the heart of a perfect and loving father who is God. And that love is transformative. That love will change our hearts, will change our minds, will change our perceptions, will change everything about us. And so this morning, uh, as we jump into our teaching text, I just want to encourage you and maybe even pray for us for a moment. If you're in this place and you feel, if whether you're a father and you feel your own lack or whether you're in this place and you did not have a father who was a shining example of God's love in your life, there, I want to assure you that you have a father who loves you and who longs to communicate his love to you. So this morning, I just want to pause for one moment if every, with every head bowed and every eye closed. If we would just open ourselves up to the love of our heavenly father this morning and pray. Father, we love you, and we know that every good gift that you give to us comes from your hand. 
We know, God, that you love us and that you long to communicate your love to us this morning. And so I pray for all of those in this place who feel their own lack, who feel their own brokenness, who feel the, the ways in which their, maybe their earthly fathers have let them down in an acute way this morning. God, we pray that your love, your Father's love would come to us, would come to them, God, and that in, uh, in the quietness of our heart in this place, that we would know, we would connect with the love of that Father, of that Father who loves us and longs to be near us and longs to give us good things. And so, as we go today, would you help us to rest, not go, but as we go about our day today, would you help us to rest in the knowledge of your love and your support and your care for us in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Yeah, if you're not getting out of that, this that easy. I know it's Father's Day, but we're, you're not getting out that easy. All right, so let's jump into our teaching text for today. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 2. Uh, if you have it on your phone, you can, uh, it's the last few verses of, in Acts chapter 2. If you were with us last week, you will know that we were in Acts chapter 2 last week as we kicked off our series on, our summer series on the book of Acts. And if you're good at math, you might be able to run the numbers. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, we, this is our summer series, so we're going to be done with it by the time that school starts. And we are still in Acts chapter 2, which means that we will not get through the book of Acts if we keep a, at this pace, right? We need to speed things up a little bit. Uh, but the, the reason we're in Acts chapter 2 again is at the beginning of the story, there are some things we need to get straight first in order to understand all the stuff that comes after it. So while right for these first couple of weeks, we're going to spend time at the beginning of the story to really kind of orient ourselves and understand what's happening in the book of Acts as the weeks go, we'll begin to move a little bit faster. But today we are going to look specifically at what happens to this group of people after the day of Pentecost. Last week we looked at the day of Pentecost, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church and all of the ramifications that happened because of that. Jesus had ascended into heaven and he had said to his disciples, stay in Jerusalem, wait in that place until you receive power from on high, until you receive a kind that got my presence, essentially, on high, and then you will be my witnesses. This is what Jesus says. And what we looked at last week was the coming of that spirit, was the, was the, was the coming of God's presence in a special way on his people, binding them together, making them his special people, his, his, those people who are called to be carriers of the message of Jesus. And we talked about all of the ramifications of that. But this week we're going to look specifically at what happened to this group of people after they received the spirit. What what happened in their lives that made them distinct moving forward because this movement of Jesus that was begun on the day of Pentecost did not stop there. It had to gain structure. It had to gain uh, momentum as it moved out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There was all of these pieces that had to be begin to fall into place. And there were some uh, very important kind of identity markers that needed to occur. The, the people of God, this newly formed people of God, this people formed around the person of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, had to, have, have to, had to develop an identity as a group of people because they didn't know at this point who they were. And this is what we see at the end of Acts chapter 2. So, this week we are talking about the effects that the presence of God has in the lives of his followers. And specifically, what happened to these first 
messengers, these first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus and how their encounter with Jesus formed them into a kind of special community, a people, a special people. So uh, we pick up Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, right after the apostle Peter stands up and gives this rousing, kind of confusing sermon to a bunch of Jewish people gathered kind of near the temple area in Jerusalem. And we, our teaching text for today picks up at the very end of Peter's message where he makes this proclamation. All of Peter's sermon can kind of be summed up in this last statement that we read in verse 36. And this is Peter's primary proclamation. This is the point of his message. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the gospel that Peter is preaching here. And the people respond to this message that Peter gives in this kind of startling way. In verse 37, it says, uh, pierced to the heart, they asked him, what shall we do? Now, as a preacher, I just want to say, this is the best response to a sermon ever, right? We all want this. If you all came to me and said, I'm pierced to the heart. What do I do now? I would say, I'm done. I can retire. This is great. They didn't all just leave afterwards. They, no, no offense, but that would be phenomenal, right? You know this. You understand. But these people come to Peter and they say they were pierced to the heart. They, their hearts were kind of um, were pierced through and they said, what shall we do? And Peter responds, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The, the theologian Stanley Horton says it this way, he says, Peter answered by calling them to repent, that is to change their minds and fundamental attitudes by accepting the will of God revealed in Christ. This crowd of people who was pierced through, who was who was stirred up emotionally by this message, who was convicted by the message of Jesus, now needed some instruction. What do we do with this? It's powerful. I feel it. There's something significant about the person of Jesus, but what now do I do? And I think we're all in that, we've all been in that place, haven't we? There's something compelling about the person of Jesus to us. There's something emotional about who he is. But I don't know what to do with it all the time. I, I see the person of Jesus. I, I have an experience with God. I, I read the scriptures and there's something about Jesus that's magnetic to me. There's something that, that uh, kind of put, turns my brain on in a way. But now what do I do with that reality? How do I, how do I follow this Jesus? What's my response? And what Peter calls the church to is to be baptized. To be baptized. Now, this wasn't a strange thing for Peter to ask the people to do. If you remember earlier in the Gospels, there were people like John the Baptist who would go around baptizing people. Ritualistic baths were a common thing in the Jewish religion and in other religions in the, in the Middle East at the time. People would take baths or take ritualistic baths as, as a way of signifying or actually cleansing themselves. And so what Peter says is be baptized. Uh, Step in under the lordship of this Jesus. Cleanse yourself in the name of this Jesus. But there's more that's happening there. Because Peter says, this baptism that you are doing, this, this 
the stepping in under the, the authority of the person of Jesus that you're doing is the, for the forgiveness of sins. And there's something that needs to happen there. There needs to be a kind of repentance from one sin and a turning away from that sin and a turning towards the person of Jesus so that one's life is now subsumed under the authority or the leadership of Jesus. Peter refers to Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. Which is funny because those two words seem like synonyms, but they're actually a little bit different. In the Roman world, Caesar was called Lord, right? Caesar was the one who ruled your life. Caesar was, was the one who set up the economic structures and the military structures and the political structures of the day. And what Peter is saying is that, that Caesar is not Lord. He is not the one that gets to determine how you live your life. Rather, this person, Jesus, is now Lord. He's king, he's ruler, he's leader, and he gets the say in your life. And the second thing he uses to describe the person of Jesus there is Messiah. Messiah. Which, in, which, is, a, which is a kind of a mashup of a word that just means anointed one. And that had some religious connotations for the Jewish people that were hearing it. The Messiah was the deliverer. He was the anointed one. He was the king. He was going to establish God's kingdom in the earth. And so, and so Peter says to this group of people to acknowledge Jesus, to turn to Jesus, to be pierced through, through the heart by the reality of the, who this person Jesus is, is to submit one's life to him as both Lord and Messiah. And baptism is a symbol of this. And then the presence of the Holy Spirit in, one, in one's life is an accompanying sign of that allegiance. This is what Peter says. And so this was the instructions that he gives to the people. And so, and then in verse 41, it says this, and so then those who had received this word were baptized, and that day were added to their number 3,000 persons, 3,000 people. And so 3,000 people repent of their sins, they submit to the reality that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah of their life, they submit to this anointed leader, this Messiah, but now what? Now we got 3,000 people in the city of Jerusalem who believe this, who have been baptized into the name of the person of Jesus, who have been apparently filled with the Holy Spirit themselves. But now what do they do? What do they do? And this, I think, in modern American society, in our kind of post-enlightenment world, is one of the primary questions. Because when we think about the most important things in our life, we think about those things residing in our brains. To follow Jesus, we think, is to believe some things about Jesus, right? The most important thing we think that any of us need to do in our lives is simply believe certain things, to hold them in our minds, and then that's all really we need to do. But this is, not the, this is not what early Christians believed, and this was not what the book of Acts even prescribes for us. Simple belief or mental assent to an idea. Rather, the people who, these first Christians who follow Jesus, believe that this Jesus, is both, who is both Lord and Messiah of their life, ha now has the kind of say about how they structure and live the rest of their lives. It is not just enlightenment mental ascent. It is rather a kind of reorientation of the actual doings of their lives. And what we see following in this passage is 
a restructuring of the actual, the fundamental realities of these people's lives. These 3,000 new, newly baptized followers of Jesus now have to figure out, okay, now what do we do? What does this mean for us in the practical realities of my life? What does this mean for the way I eat? What does this mean for the way I work? What does this mean for the way I treat people? What does this mean for all of these kind of uh, rudimentary or regular patterns of my life? And it turns out that it meant some significant things were going to change for them. Some significant things were different. And this is where the message of Jesus, I think for us, gets really, really radical. Because the message of Jesus is not just about mental ascent. If it was just about thinking things and it was about a private faith that I kept in my mind, right? If it was just about beliefs, that would be one thing. But for these early followers of Jesus, that belief in who he is works itself out into their lives in all these crazy ways that confronts systems and structures and beliefs and, and uh, orientations out in the world. And the writer of the book of Acts makes quite clear that after they believed and were baptized, there were some things that they needed to do. There was, there was some reorientations of their priorities in life. And he goes through and he lists the ways in which their lives changed because of their commitment to Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. And he lists them down beginning in verses uh, 41 and 42 uh, through about 46 and 47. And I'm just going to put them up on the screen for you here. For these early followers of Jesus who acknowledged, who acknowledged that Jesus was Lord and Messiah, this is, these are some of the practical, the real-life hallmarks of what they experienced. First, they became a kind of family. They became a family. Now, this was not hard for these people to understand because they came out of a more collectivist culture where they were not just uh, ran. In our culture, we kind of think of ourselves as kind of random individual individuals who are loosely connected to one another because we buy stuff from each other and we live in the same country. But they came from a collectivist culture where, where the idea of family was a much more important one. And, but uh, it's clear from this text that these Christians, these first followers of Jesus, reoriented the center of their lives around other followers of Jesus and believed in, in a real way that those people were now their family. They didn't, they didn't jettison their, their nuclear family or their biological family, but they reprioritized their lives around these other followers of Jesus and said, this is the family of God. It's not surprising then that the, one, the primary metaphor, I would argue, in the New Testament for coming in under the lordship of Jesus is joining God's family. It's the primary metaphor, I would argue, for what it means to become a, uh, become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus. So that was the first thing. The second thing they did was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There was more that they had to learn. There was more that they had to understand. There was more that they had to take into their heart about who the person of Jesus was. Notice these 3,000 Jews that came to faith in Jesus on that day, had maybe they, some of them were alive at the same time that Jesus was, so maybe it was possible that they had seen him, but they had not apprenticed themselves to Jesus. They had not been his followers. They had not learned his way of life. And because they now, because they were, they now uh, promised that he was their Lord, their Savior, their leader, they now needed to learn what, in, in a practical way, what it looked like to live that out into their daily lives. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the teaching of these eyewitnesses. 
So that's two. Number, the third thing that the text says in verse 44 is that there was a kind of revolution of, personal, of their personal economies. There was a revolution of their personal economies. The, the, this passage makes quite clear that the people who began to follow Jesus, their fundamental orientation for money got flipped on its head. The, uh, the pastor, um, uh, Tim Keller, uh, likes to say that in the ancient world, everyone shared their bodies and no one shared their money. And, it, and the Christians completely flipped that on their head, where they didn't share their bodies with anybody, but they gave their money away to everybody. There was a revolution in their personal economies. They began to, to sell any extra resource they had and distribute that to those who didn't have enough. There was a kind of revival, there was a kind of economic revival that took place. And this became a kind of hallmark of the church moving forward. This became something they do. When someone in the church had extra, they would, they would sell that extra or they would get rid of it and take that resource and give it to those who didn't have enough. They, uh, in verse 44 specifically, it says they were together, they had all things in common, and they were selling property and sharing the proceeds for those who had need. Now, this is not socialism per se. It is not the obliteration of personal property. Rather, it is seeing one's own personal property not as one's own and using it, leveraging it on behalf of the other, right? But there is a kind of revolution of their personal economies. And to follow Jesus is to walk into a situation where we understand that if you follow Jesus, your personal economy will be revolutionized. And this is, was countercultural in this context and in this culture, and it, I would argue it is even more countercultural in ours. We live in a world that worships money, that worships resource. And while we do live in a nation that is fairly generous, that Americans give money away, we, are also, we also must acknowledge that we are the richest country the world has ever seen, that we produce more trash than, like, uh, than all of the other developed countries in the world combined. We throw more food away. We throw something like a third of our food just away in the garbage than, uh, than uh, any other nation on the face of the earth. We hoard and we waste in this country. And to allow Jesus to revolutionize our economies, our personal economies, is one of, if not the most revolutionary thing any of us can do. Uh, there's a word that, that people use sometimes in church. It's called revival. Has anybody ever heard this word, revival? It means a kind of renewing of passion for God, basically, in, in one's heart. And when we think about the word revival, we think of our emotions being stirred and our hearts being uh, enlivened and our love for God being expanded. What I'm interested in personally as a pastor, and I, what I think is a true hallmark of revival, if you want to ask me, if you ask me honestly, is not that a bunch of people get together and get their emotions stirred up. I will, I will say a revival is happening when I see a revival or a revolution of our personal economies. Because I know when it sinks to that level, something real has occurred. Especially in a culture like ours that loves money so much. So that's number three. There's a, there was a revolution of their personal economies. And number four, there was lots of food. And this is the one I like the most. 
For the cr first Christians, the table was spiritually ec and economically and socially revolutionary. In verse 46 and 47, it says this, taking meals together daily, praising God, having favor with all the people. It says multiple times in that section that they ate together, that they broke bread, that they took meals together. Eating together was one of the, if not the main thing in a, in a daily way that the church was the church. They ate together. And this is good news, right? This is good news. In the, and it was revolutionary in a sense. In the first century world, to sit at table with someone was a way of saying in a public sense that I approve of this person. This is why it's so scandalous when Jesus has prostitutes and sinners come to his table. Because it was like saying, I approve of this person. I love them. I, I think they're okay. And, and in the early church, they began to do this thing where they, where they had meals with people who were at different social and economic stratifications in their culture. And that was scandalous. For a slave or a doulos to have a meal with, uh, with the, the pater or the father or the family head in the Greco-Roman world was a scandal. And this was something that began to happen in the early church. Paul even says to the church, uh, I when he's, uh, he's sending a a messenger back to one of the churches and he says greet this messenger as a brother even though he was technically a slave of someone in that church as well this person is a brother he is an equal and to and to eat at table with somebody who was on this on socially speaking not equal with you was a kind of revolutionary thing and so the early church began to kind of flatten the social structures of their day by eating together it was this beautiful thing and they did that all while praising god and having favor with all the people the table was the primary way and place where the, or these early Christians communicated to the world that they were a kind of new family of believers who had structured their life in a new and different way. It, the, the table was the primary place where they shared their resources because um, to share a meal was to share economic resource with another, looking for no return of their own, looking for no return. This is the kind of revolutionary way that these early followers of Jesus structured their lives. And so to sum all this up, I kind of have a, a way of summing this up. Individual lives radically committed to Christ and radically committed to community was the hallmark of the early church. Individual lives radically committed to Christ and radically committed to this community of faith was the hallmark of the early church. And so the great litmus test, I think, to determine whether you and I are rightly worshiping God is are we being drawn closer to people or pushed further away from them? Is our, our, is our heart being enlarged? And is it, are we seeing more space created for people in our lives? Are, are our hearts being progressively knit together with other people's hearts in a way that brings unity in a way that praises God? Or, are, 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 or is our religion a kind of thing that is keeping us separate from people, is pushing us away from people? There's this word that the early church used to describe what their relationship in this new community was like, and the word was koinonia. It's um, translated in, in English, fellowship. And fellowship is kind of an old churchy word that we use a lot and I like. But it doesn't capture all of the significance of what this word koinonia meant. It was a familial word. It was a, it was a word of close bond and relationship. And to step into 
the faith of Jesus was to step into koinonia with other followers of Jesus. Where Jesus is worshipped as both Christ and Lord in the book of Acts, deep familial love develops between his followers. And this is the point. This is the point of the message of Jesus. The scholar uh, Stanley Grenz puts it this way. He says, according to the Bible, God's ultimate desire is to create from all nations a reconciled people living within renewed creation and enjoying the presence of the triune God. This biblical vision of community is the goal of history. It's beautiful, isn't it? And in a sense, you can say that the, the visible way that this, these first Christians put on display in their community what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ is a little, imperfect, I will acknowledge, but a little picture of what it looks like when Jesus is fully Lord. You know, Jesus said in the Gospels that his purpose was to bring the kingdom of God, to usher in the rule and reign of God, to establish the, the rule, the kingship of God in such a way as that things would look like he was king. And these first Christians, in their life together, set out to live like Jesus was king. To live like Jesus was actually who he was, the Lord of the universe. And these uh, signs or these effects followed. We cannot simply follow Jesus from our minds. We must follow Jesus with our hearts in community. This is how it works. And as I read this, I can't help but see this same message, again, be so revolutionary in our culture and in our time. We live in probably, in particularly in the modern, the modern technologically advanced societies, not just in the West, but all modern technologically advanced societies. We live in probably the loneliest and most isolating time in world history, don't we? Technology has not made this better. We do have social media, and it is social in a sense, in a way, I guess. But, it, but no one will say that it is community in the truest sense. It is isolating, and it is producing higher levels of loneliness and anxiety and depression than the world has ever seen. And this way of being a people in the world is a way that I believe brings immense hope to an isolated and lonely world. You know, in our culture, we're always searching for the, to be my authentic self, right? This word authenticity is a very important one. How do I be myself? How do I be true to myself? How do I be my most authentic self? And that's something, in culture, that's something that we believe we do kind of by ourselves. So I go into the woods, right? I don't know. I don't know what you do. I go into the woods and figure, figure stuff out, right? I go be by myself or I go, I have to go on this journey and I got to go figure things out. I got to figure out who I am. I got to be true to my most authentic self. And there's some truth to that. God wants you to be the truest version of yourself. He wants you to live into the version of uh, you that he created you to be. There's some truth to it. 
But whenever we think about uh, developing this true or authentic self, very often we think about just doing it alone. That I become my most true and authentic self if I personally, by myself, just kind of figure out who I am. Which is not actually how it works. Do you know how we figure out who we truly are? By being in community. By being in relationship with one another. I said to Ashley one time, she went out of town. I think I've said this from the, from the stage, but I am my truest self when she's with me. When she's not with me, you would be blown away by how many salt and vinegar chips I eat when she's not around. <laughs> it's so bad. It's horrible. I eat like, there's, like, there's just like six bags of chips <laughs> strewn over the living room, and I'm like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> you weren't here. You didn't stop me. And the, the reality is, is uh, that's not who I am. It's not, definitely not who I want to be, right? I am my truest self when she's around. And God created you and I to be our truest selves, not in isolation from one another, but rather in community with one another. When we're in community with one another, we get to see our gifts and our talents and our love expand and grow. We get to serve one another in a way. And serving is like the core of what love is. And if God has created us to be loving beings, we have to have people to serve right? It is in community, it is in relationship that we become our truest, most authentic selves. And when we distance ourselves from community, when we, when we stiff arm people, when we keep ourselves at arm's length from people, what actually ends up happening is we become a kind of broken, sh uh, shaded, kind of inauthentic version of ourselves. And to come in under the lordship of Jesus is to step into community. And this is radical because it's radical. But it is so needed in our time. I was reading uh, a little bit a few weeks ago about how in Japan, they, ha they have now come up with a word for people who die. Uh, what they call a kind of lonely death. And what they mean by that is that it's people who die and then are not found for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks because they don't have anyone in their lives. They don't have any person who would ever really miss them. We are living in a world that is becoming progressively this way, and we are substituting digital relationships out for real relationships, and it is draining our souls. It is draining us of our humanity, even. Nate, if you come. And what, and what I have found, and what I think is the, the, the wisdom of the scriptures— is that you and I are first and foremost created to live under the lordship of Jesus, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world, and to live under that reality. But then based on that reality, to step fully and deeply into community with others, rightly relating with other people, so that we be can become more the people that God has created us to be. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the kind of revolution of love that took place very quickly after these first followers of Jesus. Jesus made this confession of faith, were baptized in both water and in the Holy Spirit, and then began to live out fully what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the promise of Scripture. It truly is. In Psalm 68, verse 6, this is what the psalmist says of God, God sets the lonely in families and he leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. God 
is a God of relationship. He's a God of community. And he sets the lonely in families. And he leads out the prisoners with singing. Prison is a pretty isolated and lonely place, right? But those who are rebellious, those who don't want to acknowledge this lordship, live in a kind of sun-scorched land. Of land and they're in the desert by themselves, basically. And so this morning, as we, as we conclude, I just want to ask this question. And I just wanted to reverberate in our minds a little bit this morning. Are you lonely? Are you lonely? Do you feel by yourself? Do you have those moments? And all of us do where we just feel like there's no one who understands me. There's no one that gets me. There's no one I can turn to. There's no help for me. It's just me out here on an island by myself. And the reality is, is this is, this is not how God created us to live. And that feels bad because that's not who we were created to be. But the person of Jesus and the, and the message of Jesus holds out for us a kind of promise that when we turn to him, we place our faith, or I think a better word is trust in him, and we get to walk out what that means, we will be placed in a spiritual family called the church where we don't have to be lonely anymore. It's a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. That we will be led out of the, our isolation, our prison that is our own minds and hearts. And we will be led into joy, into relationship, to koinonia, to fellowship, to community. And so some of us may have, may have made mental assent to the fact that we believe in Jesus, but we haven't made that step into community. We haven't made that step into the, into the family of God like is prescribed in the book of Acts. And so this morning, I just want to say, we're not perfect at Grace Community. We, that's our, we named our church that on purpose. We're not perfect. We're not all even that nice. <laughs> that's not a good pitch, is it? But we are the people of God. We, and we want to be like them, like those first followers of Jesus want to be a people under the lordship of Jesus in community. And we're committed, and I'm committed as your pastor, to, to continue to walk out what it means to be that type of people. We haven't nailed it. We're not right. We'll never be 100%, but I'm committed to walking that out with all of you to see what that looks like as we go. So if you just close your head and bow your eyes, if you're in this place and you need to be... Yeah, sorry. Um, if you want to just... Close them. Bow them. With me. Let's pray. And let's ask the Spirit of God to minister to our hearts this morning. And to help us, to give us the courage. And to maybe even bring to us somebody this week who we can step into community with. God, we love you. And we ask that uh, for those of us in this place who feel lonely, who feel isolated, who feel alone. That first and foremost, they would be ministered to by the loving heart of God right now in the name of Jesus. That they would see and know this person who is Jesus, this lover of their souls, who longs to be close and near to them, who longs to be closer than a brother, who longs to uh, communicate their value and their worth to them, God, this morning. And then, God, would you help them to see, these people, all of us to see, that there's a community of faith. There's a, there's a group of people here who want to rally around them, who want to bring them out of their isolation and into community to build them up. 
to help them become all that God has created them to be. So God, as imperfect as we are, as broken and as flawed as we are, God, would you help us all? Would you give us the courage to step into a relationship just a little deeper this week than the week before? Would you revolutionize our love? Would you help us realize that we are, even if we don't always feel like it, the family of God? And would you help us to live up to that high calling? We pray it all today in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. So I just want to say, as as a little plug, part of the reason we're beginning men's discipleship this week is because we want more of this. We want more relationship. We want more connection. We want more opportunities to talk. We want to live out more what it looks like to be the people of God in community as men following Jesus. So just a little plug for men's discipleship on Thursday. All right. All right. It's bright. And it's time to go have brunch. Go today in the peace, grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Happy Father's Day, everybody. We'll see you back next week.